Connell Tribune, Friday the 22nd of October 2004. Long Cash revisited life less ordinary. My name's Paddy McManaman, a Belfast man with domiciled in Terman since the late 70s. And recently I took a journey back to Long Cash, where I'd spent six years of my young life in the early 70s. I'd been hoping to meet up with William Plum Smith, my leading loyalist, who I became friends with during our incarceration in the cache, but it didn't work out. The occasion coincided with the 30th anniversary of the burning of Long Cache, which has gone down in Republican folklore. I'm a 50-year-old father of three grown-up children and two grandchildren. After working in a German car factory in Letterkenny for the past 20 years, I took redundancy last year and had returned to full-time education as a mature student at the LYT on an IT course in computer programming. At 7am on the 16th of October 1974, 30 years ago, I stood in the middle of the infamous Longcash internment camp along with Tony Clark and Fat Campbell, who later escaped from Crumlin Road Jail in the famous jailbreak. We were listening to a small radio which had been smuggled into the camp and the news report was telling us that although most of the camp had been burned to the ground the previous night, the British Army were now in complete control of the camp. The statement was greeted with great mirth as there wasn't a soldier or warder in sight and the whole of the camp was under the complete control of Republican prisoners. They say the first casualty of war is truth. Those two days in October 74 were a culmination of a year-long campaign against the prison establishment by Republican POWs and indeed the Loyalist prisoners, a little known fact, who joined us in our struggle against the prison regime. Thirty years later it's incredible to look back and see how things have changed. The day I left Long Cash, I swore to myself that I wouldn't ever be back. In the turbulent times of the 70s and turf lodge, that wasn't guaranteed, but thankfully through circumstances, a bit of luck and life-changing decisions it came to be. Until this week, in a burning, no pun intended, desire to just revisit the cash once, I'd made contact with Plum Smith, who I'd became friendly with as we walked around our separate cages all these years ago. He had been in the UVF cage, 19 beside ours, and as we walked around the cages we used to peel off from our walking partners and talk across the stretch of ground between the cages. I can't recall how we started talking, but I do remember we were both lifted the same week in 72 and we're in Crumlin Road Jail together on Dawn different wings. 30 years later it would have been fitting to meet up in that most striking symbol of the troubles. Her Majesty's prison maze in British terminology but forever etched in most people's minds as Long Cash or Robin Island. Been born in Belfast of parents from Donegal and Tyrone, the route to Long Cash began in the first days of the civil rights movement, as 15-year-old teenagers, we joined marchers at the city hall and along the falls. 
On one of these marches, we were attacked by the notorious B-Specials. The program of August 69, which saw hundreds of homes burned to the, in the falls in Ardoin, led to involvement in the resistance to storm and British rule. As a 15-year-old, you expect to be involved in the local football club, going to your first dance, meeting girls for the first time. In Belfast, our experiences were armed British soldiers and RUC men burning streets and people being killed. We didn't choose the route we took, but by the strange quirk of fate of being born in Belfast, it became our life. August 69 in the falls as it burned and seeing the first troops arrive. June 70 in the falls curfew, the Ballymurphy riots, then gradually things moved from riot into full-scale war and the first casualties amongst Republicans and British forces. Eventually as a last resort internment was introduced on the last day of 1971, I found myself on the way to the cache via the prison ship Maidstone moored in Belfast Lock and McGilligan Camp near Derry. Our stay was shortened considerably by the fall of Stormont in March 72 and the hills of Donegal which seemed so far away from the roofs of the cages in McGilligan were a welcome respite, respite that summer but it wasn't to last and 13 days after returning to Belfast after Operation Motorman and one day less than my late uncle in Terman's prediction don't go up there you'll be arrested in two weeks I found myself back in Long Cash. Over the next years, it was a constant struggle against the prison regime, who were mostly loyalists and took great delight in calling in the army occasionally to hand out beatings. As political prisoners, we were in general control of our own cages, and this was accepted by the establishment at the time. Although, as we know, tragically, this was to change in the late 70s and early 80s. During 74, we decided to up the ante in the daily disputes with the governor, and all visits were refused and eventually prison food rejected. They continued to leave the food in the cages, so it was thrown over the wire. This was an ongoing battle in the daily run-in of the camp. During the period, the loyalist prisoners got involved as well, as the camp leaders would meet and organize joint strategies. I clearly, clearly remember flags flying in the UVF cage where Gusty Spence was with a green hand and a red hand together with the slogan United we stand, divided we fall. This wasn't too popular on the outside where the loyalist paramilitaries were still consumed with blind sectarianism and their men inside were told to cool it. Now this was the period just after the loyalist workers strike and they successfully shafted the Labour government over Parshearn. But here we were, combatants from both sides working together inside Long Cash. To me it brought on visions of what it must have been like in 1935 when Protestants and Catholics joined together in Belfast to oppose Stormont and the riots. Leading up to the 15th of October there had been various disputes with the warders and they had threatened to send the army in again if things didn't settle down. Republican leaders told them if the army was sent in would burn the camp down. A game of brinksmanship was then played out for several weeks, but on the evening of the 15th the bluff was called. In case 13 the governor sent the army in to take control, and immediately the order was sent around the 20 cages by semaphore, send it up. The next 24 hours were the most, among the most amazing of my life. 
The warders were ordered to leave their posts and given safe passage. The next half hour, every hut and every cage in the camp was set alight, except for the loyalist cages, and the obscene monstrosity that held thousands of Irishmen was raised to the ground. The warders and British troops stayed on guard at the perimeter and were supported by thousands of troops who were rushed across town to the, to the cache. We had complete control of the whole camp and kept control for the next 24 hours. We were under strict orders not to try and breach the perimeter in case the army would open fire, but in hindsight, considering 38 guys went out the front gate 10 years later, who could have stopped 3,000? We were in control of the camp from 9 p.m. that evening right through the night until 4 p.m. the next day. During the night, loyalists opened their cage and gave us support. They actually were going to torch their cages as well, but outside pressure blocked them. Sworn enemies on the outside, the common denominator of our shared lack of freedom and a genuine distrust of the prisoner regime led us for a short period in 74 to cooperate. Generally, most of us were working class guys from the same type of areas, a bit on either side of the peace line. Probably for the majority, cannon fodder in our age-old struggle, but at the time, conscientious participants. I think those days in 74 taught me the futility of sectarianism and how we could live together, if only we could get rid of the root cause which divided us, and that was the British. Early the next morning, as we listened to the news on the smuggled radio, we wondered why the army hadn't made a move. We didn't have long to wait, as about 10am we heard the roar of Saracen armoured cars come roaring through the main gates and hundreds of soldiers appeared, started firing CS gas. At first it was like a scene from the streets of Turf Lodge been reenacted for the cameras which the army had on tall cranes to capture for posterity more likely to use and for future young gullible recruits for training purposes. Our initial reaction was to run as we'd seen this story many times in the streets, but this was different. There was nowhere to run and we weren't street kids. We had prepared and had makeshift shields and battens and masks ourselves. And as the young soldiers charged in, the wind blew the gas back in their faces. And with not all of them having gas masks, it caused them severe problems. I can still see the terrified face of a young squatty, probably from the type of working class estate as ourselves, but in Liverpool or Glasgow. We were face to face for a few seconds and he was more frightened than I was. Now this attack by, attack by the army started about 10am and incredibly raged to and fro for the following six hours. At one stage I can remember thinking to myself, is this really happening? Here we were, inside the most famous jail in Europe, surrounded by thousands of soldiers and warders, and a battle for control still not settled, almost 24 hours later. In the centre of the camp, which incidentally was the size of Letterkenny, there were two large football pitches, and by the middle of the afternoon the battle was con concentrated there. As the army were making a little headway, we were shocked to see low-flying helicopters sweep over the pitch, and dropped small cluster canisters of some form of gas, which completely covered the pitch, temporarily blinded the people who were vomiting. The gas, not the normal CS gas used widely by the army in the streets, has in later years been the subject of debate whether the army had used an illegal gas on us called CR gas. 
and there may still be a case brought to the European Court of Human Rights over its use. In the confusion of the gas attack, the army Saracens broke through the wire fencing and onto the pitches. Severe hand-to-hand fighting took place. Several soldiers were held by Republicans but released unharmed in stark contrast to the treatment handed out later by the army. Eventually, Republicans were divided between the two pitches and the soldiers surrounded one pitch and pumped gas and attacked those caught there. Many guys received severe beatings and one guy, Huey Doran, lost an eye as the soldiers fired plastic bullets at point-blank range. Hundreds had made it off the pitches to the top end of the camp and continued fighting with the army. This area housed the UVF prisoners and they helped any of the guys who were injured. Legendary Shankill loyalist Gusty Spence was in charge and amazingly, he negotiated with the army commanders and the Republican leaders who were caught in the pitch to call an end to the fighting. We were told to return to our own burnt out cages which contained nothing but mangled tin and ashes. The soldiers then entered the cages and as victorious armies do worldwide, they exacted revenge on the losers. Many guys received bad beatings. One guy, Dingus McGee, had his leg broken by a sadistic commando. As further punishment, the government decided we would live in the cages we had destroyed. So for the next six weeks, we lived in shacks made up from the rubble, just bits of wood and tin and blocks near. The big man himself, Ian Paisley, came to visit the loyalists and Gusty Spence asked would we allow him into our cage. The next thing there he is, standing in the middle of cage 18. On TV that night, he compared the conditions to the worst slums he'd seen, so much for not talking to the terrorists. Eventually, we'd be moved to other parts of the camp as rebuilding work began. The camp took on an altogether different appearance, with massive 30-foot walls built right through the camp to prevent further recurrence. Of course, following on, we started to see strange buildings being built near to the M1 motorway at the bottom end of the camp. A peculiar design in the shape of H. At that stage, no one was to know the historical significance that these H-blocks would assume in the years to come. As I walked about the old cages, thinking back over the years, memories came flooding back. Faces, Kieran Doherty, Bobby Sands, Joe McDonnell, Brendan Davidson, Anthony McKernan, Joey Sorgener, Frankie Fitzsimmons, Jim Mavanna, and many more. All were on the pitch that day, but never survived to see the peace. Thirty years later, living a different life in Donegal, and been blessed to see my three children and grandchildren growing up, and luckily my parents growing old gracefully. I can count myself lucky. To live in a different environment with different values and to see events in a different light can cause unseen problems which have to be overcome. The events of many years ago have been swallowed in the passage of time. The message, memories indelibly imprinted on the subconscious never fade away. <laughs>